So turn with me now to James, the book of James, chapter 4. James chapter 4, and as we continue to see James instructing believers, James 4, and we'll be in verses 11 and 12 this morning. James 4, 11 and 12. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Right? That is a famous verse, and that's from the Sermon on the Mount, if you didn't know where that was from, Matthew 7, verse 1. And it's certainly one of the more well-known verses, right, both inside and outside the church. It's entered into popular culture. Uh, you can hear this verse referenced even on TV shows and in movies that would otherwise have no reference to the Bible, but they will at least reference this verse. It's entered into popular culture because it carries this seemingly drop-dead statement of Jesus, you can't speak one word against what I'm doing. Right? That, that's what the culture interprets it when they hear that word judge not that that to them means you can't say that i'm doing anything wrong you don't have the right to judge not well as we come to our passage in james today we find a similar sentiment to jesus's we find a a sentiment uh, that is similar to and we have to ask the question well does jesus's statement mean what the culture attributes to it and more than that does james's statement mean the same thing that jesus's statement does should we seal our lips when we see things that offend us or when we see things that we know offend the god of the scriptures well james instructs us that there is only one qualified judge and it's not you there's only one qualified judge and it's not you so let's read our passage today, try and unpack these things. This here, the word of the Lord from James chapter 4, uh, verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And this is the word of the Lord. I remember that James is writing this letter to the churches because he wants them to be wise. He wants them to be steadfast. Because he, as he has written in chapter 1, right, the one who is wise, the one who is steadfast, the one who remains wholehearted in the midst of the various trials of life, this is the one who receives the crown of life. This is the one who receives eternal life. Right? So if that is your goal, if that is your aim, if you want to have eternal life in the glories of the new heavens and the new earth, you have to remain steadfast. You have to be wise. And so all along what James has been doing in his letter, right, is expounding and expanding upon that, that thought, that issue, that reality. He's been addressing issues of sinfulness within the churches. And in the passage directly before ours, right, he calls the church to humble repentance that they might find the forgiveness of their sins. Today's passage turns back to exhorting the church uh, to deal with the ways in which they use their tongue. They're using their tongue wrongly. 
And James has already dealt extensively with this issue in chapter 3, especially the beginning portion. And there he called the church to a wholehearted use of the tongue. That is to say that blessing God and cursing those created in the image of God should never come from the lips of a Christian. As he says there, it must not be so, brothers. Well, today we deal with the issue of judgment. I want us to see first the unqualified judge, the unqualified judge. Out of verse 11, right? James is writing to the church and he says here in verse 11, right? Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And so we actually return to this uh, familiar and familial uh, address as he's addressing the church. And this is distinguished a little bit, right, from what he has said already in this chapter. If we go back, for instance, uh, to verse 4 of chapter 4, he addresses the his readers, you adulterous people, right? you adulterous people. So James has spoken uh, very strongly against their sinful issues, but now we see him return again to address them as brothers. Uh, he is calling out to the church. And he writes, Do not speak evil against one another. And when we see this word, or this phrase, speaking evil against, uh, what we understand this to be is slander. So slander. Uh, And slander is this use of one tongue to speak maliciously with the intent of hurting another's reputation. So it's, saying things that are patently false, right? Slander is saying things that are patently false or saying things that are entirely unsupported. So for instance, you call someone adulterer and they've never committed adultery, that's patently false. Or you say, you know, I think they committed adultery That's something unsupported, right? You don't know that to be the case, and yet you're speaking it. Why are you speaking it? To hurt their reputation. Uh, Peter uses this word slander, actually, this the same word in the Greek, uh, in 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16, and this might be a familiar passage to us, but for entirely different reasons. Uh, But there Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Notice the contrast here. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So there, Peter's addressing a church that is suffering, that is going through suffering, and he says, when you suffer... And when you suffer, do it well. Suffer well. And when people ask you, why do you have hope? Be ready to give a defense of the gospel. Be ready to say, this is why I hope. Even though I suffer, this is why I hope. And do it with gentleness and respect. And notice what he said there, right? Gentleness, respect, good conscience, good behavior. And that contrasts with that word slander, right? Speaking evil against. So that way, when the world speaks evil against you, it is slander. It's false. It's unsupported. Why? Because you have a good conscience. You have good behavior. You answer with gentleness and respect. 
right? So, sometimes people uh, slander a Christian and the Christian gets mad and curses and hoots and hollers. What does that show? The slander is probably true, right? It's not slander. They're speaking truth. But if you're slandered and you respond with gentleness and respect, right, eventually the world may well yet recognize that what they have done is evil. That's Peter's idea there. That's that's what Peter says here. And and again, we see this contrast there. And what James is instructing us then is, is don't be like the world. Don't be like this evil world that slanders. Don't slander. Don't speak falsely. Don't speak maliciously. Don't speak trying to bring to ruin another's reputation for your own selfish ends. And in view, James may well have the words of Jesus. In Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest ye be judged. That's the King Jamesian version, right? And what's more is he may well have in view the words of the law, specifically out of Leviticus 19. Uh, because if you go through the background, the context to, to the book of James, a lot of commentators see a lot of crossover between Leviticus 19 and the topics there and what we see in the book of James. And certainly we have Leviticus 19.16. Leviticus 19.16. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. So there the law says, don't be a slanderer. Don't speak. stand up against the life of your neighbor. God has abhorred slander from the very beginning. And so true is that today. Right, why would God hate slander? It's false and malicious. Right, God doesn't slander. God speaks truth. Always. And so too we ought. But we may ask the question, why would we slander? Or why do we slander? Well, the question actually may be better asked, what do we have to gain from the ruin of another's reputation? And when I think we pose that question in that way, right, because slander may seem like a far off distant thing to us. It may seem a strange thing, like why would anyone do that? Well, if we ask that question, what would we gain from the ruin of another's reputation? We begin to see maybe the motivation as to why we would slander. Maybe we slander because if we tear down our coworker enough before our boss, we get the promotion instead of them. We get the raise instead of them. We get elevated in the eyes and we get special treatment and they don't, right? They get the bottom of the pile. Maybe we slander in the church because if we, if the pastor thinks poorly of another church member, well, the pastor's not going to pay that much attention to them. Or maybe they won't get position or prominence in the church. And we seem to certainly think that within the church as James is writing to there's an issue of vying for position and prominence. That's why he says in chapter 3, right? Not many of you should be teachers. You're vying for a position and prominence within the church that you don't need, that you shouldn't have. And there's greater judgment coming for you who are teachers. So we could see someone slandering. Well, do you know what he did? I heard that this is how he was like. Are you sure you want to make him a teacher? I don't know. Right? So, so maybe we could see how we might stand to gain 
from such a situation. Maybe we slander because we just really dislike the other person. And here's something we tend to do with people we don't like. We want other people not to like them either. right? For people that we don't like, we want to tear them down in the eyes of others so that other people have the same judgment as us so we can feel justified. Well, see, they don't like them either. I knew they were a bad character all along. I could tell. Right? Paul, Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 12.20. In 2 Corinthians 12.20, this, this issue of slander uh, feeds into and flows from other issues, other sins. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12.20, For I fear, Paul writes, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. And again, that word slander is the same that we see in James, speaking evil against. And notice that all these things that kind of go together. And don't these sound familiar to the situation we see that James is writing about here in in chapter 4, right? Go back to chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And what we find in this list that Paul gives us in to the Corinthian church, and what we find here in our passage is that slander is not an isolated sin, but it has all these uh, all these uh, tendrils reaching out to various other sins, and tendrils from those sins running into slander. It's all it's all tied together: jealousy and quarreling, anger and hostility, gossiping and conceit, disorder. All these things tie together and feed into slander. And slander feeds into them. And as one commentator puts it, quarrels over most issues end with personal attacks. Right? When, when we don't win the argument based on logic and reasoning, when we can't get our way, when the dispute doesn't go our way, what do we do? Well, we're like the little child, although we may not use the words of a little child. You're stupid. You smell bad. What's that? Slander. That's slander, right? So it's it's a, a maybe a trite example that, and again, it can get a lot worse, right? As we quarrel, as we fight, we say we we personally attack someone because we don't have any other recourse. We we haven't won on merits, and so we we resort to attacking the other person. But notice that that slander is a so so he says, don't speak evil, don't slander one another, brothers. Don't do this, brothers and sisters in Christ. But he links something else to slander here in our passage that that we have to pay attention to. And it goes to Jesus' statement, judge not. Right? Because he says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks speaks evil against the law and judges the law. James continues here, and we have to realize that in our slander of a brother or sister in Christ, we are in effect judging them. We're passing judgment on them. 
And at the very least, right, at the very least we could say the reason we slander is because we want someone else to pass judgment on them. We want somebody else to uh, judge them in the ways in which we have spuriously spoken of them. And James writes, James connects that then. And this is, this is an interesting connection that he makes here because I don't think we would arrive to it on our own. If we slander our brother, if we judge our brother, we're actually slandering the law and judging the law. Right? If we slander our brother or judge our brother, we're actually slandering the law and judging the law. We have to ask the question, why? Why does he do that? Uh, commentators seem to link these two things this way, that the slanderer is usurping the law's authority. That is, that the law alone, and ultimately the lawgiver, as we'll see in the next verse, the law alone has sole authority to denounce a person. The law alone has that authority. But for a person to denounce another, if you're a brother in Christ denouncing another brother in Christ, judging them and saying that their eternal state is hell bound, you're taking for yourself a position and an authority you do not have. And you cannot have. But you may say, well, Paul tells us with quite strong language to sit in judgment against those within the church. We could look at 1 Corinthians 5, 3 through 5. 1 Corinthians 5, 3 through, 3 through 5. In the background of this, right, is there this, there's this man within the Corinthian church who is sleeping with his father's wife. So it would be uh, his stepmother. And uh, Paul, Paul rebukes this church for thinking that that's okay. Even the Gentiles don't think that's okay. How in the world are you as a church going to think that's okay? And he says in verse 3 of that chapter, chapter 5, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's quite strong language, isn't it? But Paul, judge not lest ye be judged. Jesus tells us to treat a brother or sister in Christ as a Gentile and a tax collector, right? This passage on church discipline, again, we may be well familiar with it. Matthew 18, verses 15 and through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. But Jesus, judge not lest ye be judged. So what's going on here? Well, the context is essential. And let us think about this. Uh, we come to James's direction here to not judge our brother, uh, and again, that's about usurping the authority of the law. 
And so we have to understand the nuance of what Jesus is saying in Judge Not, what James is saying here in Don't Slant, if you slander, if you judge your brother, you slander the law, you speak, uh, you judge the law. So what's the context? So in all these things, uh, in both what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7 and in what James is talking about here, the judgment is about final judgment. So when we see this word judgment, right, in judge, what we're talking about is the final, eternal state of a person. Uh, and so we're not talking about temporary judgments. We're talking about, we're saying, in effect, this person, you're going to hell. You're damned. The slander, right, the slander is easier because it's about false things. It's not about true things. Right? So slander is an easy one to deal with because it's, a, it's, it's about falsehoods. And the church is called to evaluate and strongly correct those who claim to be in Christ but don't have the fruits of obedience. That's what James has been doing here in, in this letter. That's what he was doing in this very chapter when he says in verse 9, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Right? Repent. You're in sin. You need to humbly repent before God and find forgiveness of your sins. He calls them adulterous people to get their attention, to wake them up to the truth of what they were doing because they were acting as adulterous people. He's not slandering them. He's telling the truth. And this is the issue of church discipline, and we're going to consider that more here in a little bit. But the reality is, here in the moment, right, while we're in this verse, the reality is you are unqualified to be the kind of judge that James is talking about, right? When, If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge, right? If you stand in the authority of the law, if you stand in its place, you're not doing the law, you're judging the law, right? You, you are not being obedient to the law, you are taking priority and prominence over the law. You are unqualified to wield the kind of authority that the commands of God have. Do you realize that? You are unqualified to be what the law is. You don't have the authority. Why is that? Do you think you have greater authority than the word of God? And I know in our day, the answer is a hearty yes. Right? You do you. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. My body, my choice. What do all these have in common? All these statements, the threads that tie them together is that they are all statements that set themselves against a holy God. Right? That try and set themselves above a holy God. They are spoken in opposition to the Lord God. Understand that. Really understand that. That the narrative of our culture, that the, that what our culture wants and preaches and says and sings, what we see in so many Disney movies, which we think Disney is this benign cultural behemoth. But understand what they are doing. They are giving you a narrative that puts you above God. That's what they're doing. That's what those statements mean. 
doesn't matter what other people think about you. You do you. You be who you are. Be true to yourself. Those put themselves, they, they speak against the law and they judge the law. And what will be the end of one who speaks such, whether by word or action? Well, they will meet with the qualified judge. So let's see that next. Let's consider that next in verse 12. The qualified judge, there is only one lawgiver and judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? There is only one lawgiver and judge. There is only one who is above all. There is only one who can speak authoritatively to every single person on this planet. There is only one who can definitively speak to the final destiny of every single person on this planet. There is only one qualified judge, and it, it's not you. Isaiah 33:22 tells us this very thing. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. It is only God, the Lord God, who can save us. He is able to save and he is able to destroy. That's what James reminds us here, right? He who is able to save and to destroy. Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, 28, Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body. Rather, those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear the Lord God and him alone. Don't fear the rabble of this earth. Don't fear the minions of the evil one. Don't fear the sword, the noose, or the electric chair. Don't fear those petty things. And I know in saying that, when the blade is cutting into your neck, that doesn't feel like a very petty thing. When the flames are licking at your feet to consume you, that doesn't feel like a very petty thing. But in comparison, in comparison, they are petty things. Because the power of those things is limited. It's temporary. It's small in comparison. In comparison to what? Better question, in comparison to whom? Right? Jesus says that. The Lord God, the judge, the lawgiver. There is only one God, judge, lawgiver. He alone holds all authority. He alone is omnipotent. He alone can destroy not just your body. He can do much more than just make your body hurt. He can destroy your very soul. He alone can cast you into the fires of hell from which nothing returns. And James reminds his readers in chapter 5 verse 9, don't, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Listen to this. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Don't grumble. Don't slander. Don't judge. Why? Because the judge, the one who is omnipotent and with all authority, is standing at the door. He's close. He's closer than you think. And if you think he will be satisfied with your faithless works, with your double-minded service, if you think he will be 
accepting of your slanderous ways, you are sorely mistaken. Who are you to cast eternal judgment upon your neighbor when you're unqualified to do so? Here's the reality. In the case of church discipline, right? So, so let us bring in this issue of church discipline. How do we understand church discipline in light of, of what James is telling us here? When we make a statement of church discipline, it is a statement about the present condition, not the final reality. Even as the church warns about the final reality. Right? Church discipline is a process of reconciliation. And understand that, that that is one of the most important things we can understand about it because so often uh, church discipline is viewed as this cudgel by which we uh, bloody and bash people who we don't like. That's not the purpose of church discipline. It's about reconciliation. What are we trying to do? We're trying to reconcile a sinner with God. First and foremost. And secondarily, we're trying to reconcile a sinner with the one he sinned against and with the church at large. So, say for instance, there's a church member who is in willful sin. He's a slanderer. What do we do? Well, we go back to Matthew 18. What, is, what do we do? The one who has been slandered goes to the slanderer and addresses it. And, and importantly... It, he goes with the aim of reconciliation. Too often, right, someone offends us, and what do we do? I'll tell you what you did to me, right? We start yelling, we start hooting and hollering, and we go with the intention of anger. We go with the intention to make them hurt. We want to return evil for evil. But that's not the goal of church discipline, and that's not your goal, Christian. So what do you do when someone hurts you? When when someone sins against you, what do you do? You go to them to be reconciled. You go to them with gentleness. You go to them with humility and grace and love. You go to them with a forgiving spirit. And and understand what that means, right? That, That means... That your desire, the desired outcome from your conversation with them is that you would forgive them. You go wanting to forgive them, not wanting to hold it against them. And you seek to show that person from the scriptures, the one who has harmed you. So again, take this example of the slander. You go to the slander and you say, James says, the scripture says, Do not slander one another, brothers. That what has happened is sin and needs to be repented. But okay, the slanderer doesn't repent. The person who has sinned against you doesn't repent. Uh, Actually, what they do is they dig their heels in. The slanderer slanders more. So what do you do? Well, again, Matthew 18 tells us, next you take uh, one or two more witnesses with you. You go to this person with witnesses, and again, you address the sin. You go with humility and grace and love. You go with the intention of reconciliation, and you say, Brother, we have, we have seen this issue of sin in your life, and it is an affront to a holy God, and you need to repent of it. 
for the sake of your soul and for the sake of the glory of God. Repent of it. Turn from it. Be forgiven. The slanderer doesn't repent. The one you go to doesn't repent. And now, in the case of the slanderer, maybe he has more targets. right? Instead of just you, it's, well, there's this group that's really, they're evil. They're an evil group. Well, finally, the sin problem is brought before the whole church. That's what Matthew 18 tells us. Take it to the church. The church is involved in hearing about the issue and calling the slanderer, calling the one who has sinned against you to seek God's forgiveness. The church prays for reconciliation. The slanderer doesn't repent. And now instead of a small group, he goes around town saying, that church, that's an evil church. You wouldn't believe the kind of things they do there at that church. And the church then proceeds with the final process of church discipline, committing them to the Lord. The church removes them from membership. The church treats them as Gentile and tax collector. And what does that mean? It means that they're not saved. Right In the judgment of the church, from everything that we can see about their present condition, it cannot be that they are saved because they fail to repent. The church preaches the gospel to him, just like he never knew it in the first place, because the truth of his actions is, it doesn't appear that he ever did know it in the first place. The difference is this. The church says something to the effect of, we are worried for your soul. You say you're a Christian, but you do not do the works of a Christian. And indeed, your unwillingness to confess your sin, to repent of it, means very likely that you are not a Christian. So repent and believe the gospel. And how is that distinguished from being a judge? From being guilty of what James writes about in verse 11? Because it's not a matter of finality. The church's statement, the church's judgment is a matter of present reality. The church is not and should not say, you are condemned to hell and there is no hope for you. But rather the church should say, you are condemned to hell unless you repent. There is still yet hope for you. Do you understand the, the vast difference between those two statements? In the judgments of the church and church discipline, there is always hope of salvation there's always hope of reconciliation jesus christ can save the vilest offender right the chief of sinners so we don't make a final statement about their soul but we point to the truth of the scriptures we can say because the lawgiver says that all who fail to come to jesus will die in their sins and suffer the judgment of hell we can say because the qualified judge says that those who profess the name of Jesus without submitting to Jesus as Lord and Savior are in peril. Right? And, and so when we do that, when we speak the truth of the scripture, we're not judging the law. We're not taking the place of the authority of the law of God's commands. No, instead we're speaking God's commands. Right? We're speaking with God's authority. Um, in a little way, it's no different than me as a preacher. I'm not up here preaching on my authority. And if I am, boy, I'm sorry for you. 
because my authority means nothing. That as and where I, I speak what God has spoken, as and where I'm faithful to this word of God, that is my authority. So don't listen to me because I'm up here speaking and I claim some kind of authority because I have a degree, because I've studied. Listen because it's the word of God. And listen to the word of God. The judge stands at the door. He who has authority can and does wield that authority. So James writes here to the church to instruct them about their use of tongue again. And we would expect that those who have engaged in verbal fights to the point where James says you murder, that they would also engage in slander. Right? It's a small step from the kind of verbal fights James is talking about to the kind of personal attacks of slander of judgment. They want for position and promises. They want God their own way over God's way. Uh, I think it's very clear that they would let their speech devolve to slander. And so too we, when we let our desires rule us, when we let our desires for prominence and position rule us, when we don't get our way, when we fight and quarrel, what we'll find is we'll turn to personal attacks. Happens every time. It's Again, they all go together. And so James exhorts them here. He commands them, don't slander. Don't judge your brother. Because when you do so, you take the place of authority in which there is only one lawgiver and judge. You make yourself lawgiver and judge when there is only one who stands over the state of men's souls. And if you take that place, you're unqualified to do it. You don't have the authority. You don't have the power. You don't have the power. I understand that, right? God can destroy both soul and body in hell. You can't do anything. Right? You, you can't do that. You might be able to kill someone here. You can't send them to hell. You don't have the authority. There's only one who does. So brothers and sisters in Christ, use your speech to build up. Right? Don't, don't speak falsely. Don't speak maliciously. But use your speech to build up. Use your speech to encourage. Use your speech for the furthering of the truth, not for hateful lies or half-truths. First, Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 4.29 right? Don't let corrupting talk. Don't let slanderous talk. But instead, that which is good for building up, that which fits the occasion, that which gives grace to those who hear. And as you do that, fear the lawgiver. Fear him who can destroy both your soul and body in hell. And there is a reality, brothers and sisters in Christ, of which we are often, uh, I think in our culture, and especially in our American church culture, and which we are oblivious to, uh, that we kind of cavalierly approach God. Uh, we do it all the time. We cavalier, uh, do, cavalierly approach him in prayer, in worship. Uh, we just think it's no big deal. Uh, he's my buddy. He's my bro. Uh, let's go on. On with the show. There you go. A little rhyme for you this morning. Uh, right, we, we think it's a, it's a small thing. And yet, there's a reality in which you rightly ought to tremble 
before the Lord God. There is a reality in which you should consider the holiness of God before you open your mouth. Uh, Think of Isaiah when he sees the vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6, and he doesn't actually see God. He sees the train of his robe, which is filling the temple. He sees smoke. He sees angels who have respect for God, have reverence for God, and who sing, holy, holy, holy. And what is Isaiah's response to this vision? Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm coming to pieces. I'm I'm unraveling in the presence of the Holy One. Do you ever have that moment before God? Or do you just kind of like bustle in like it's no big deal? There's a reality which you ought to tremble before Him. But there is a greater reality that you're called to. It is to revere your Father in heaven and to walk before Him in obedience. That's holy fear. So obedience is also holy fear, right? As Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 19, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And even if you're not in the midst of suffering, like Peter's writing to, you should still entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God has saved you for good works. He has purposed them for you, beloved. Go read Ephesians 2.10. Right? We know uh, earlier in the chapter, right? For by grace we are saved through faith, and this is not of works. Right? We know that part. But we often miss verse 10, which says that we are saved for good works. We are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. So walk in holy fear doing good, and trust yourselves to a faithful creator while doing good. That's your call. Use your speech for good. Use your speech to build up. Don't judge the eternal state of someone. Don't slander them. Do practice church discipline. Do practice those things that make for a holy church. And understand that's part of fearing God. As a church, as a church, we have to fear God. And part of that is church discipline. And for those of you who do slander, and hate, and judge. And those of you who want to be the supreme judge over your own life and over the lives of others. And this warning goes forth to so many in our world who who so, uh, so in all of their words claim this right. They would never say it, but in all that they do, they claim this right. right? To put themselves over the authority of God, understand that there is one lawgiver and judge. And he's standing at the door. The Lord is ready to pour forth his wrath upon you, sinners. And whether you regard yourself as a sinner or not, understand that God's judgments are just and true. And understand that he knows you far better than anyone else does. You can appear righteous and holy before others, but not before a holy God. You may well hide the evils of your heart from others, but you cannot hide it from him. And the penalty for your sin, the evil that you have committed in thought and word and deed, is nothing less than your eternal judgment. God will destroy your body and soul in hell. There you will reside for all eternity under the righteous wrath of a holy God. There you will remain. But friend, 
there is yet hope for you. There is one who came and stood in the place of sinners. There is one who suffered death that you may not. Christ Jesus came and lived the life you never could, died the death that you should, rose from the grave to ascend to the right hand of the Father. He defeated death and sin. And for all those who trust in Him, who look to Him, who believe in Him, they will be saved. They will find forgiveness of their sins. And you can be saved too if you repent, turn from your sin, and turn to God. You'll find forgiveness, peace with God, His eternal love. And then He calls you to walk in obedience to Him. And understand that's only possible if you submit yourself to Him. So turn to God. Confess your sins and be saved. And then do the good works of faith. Use your tongue to build up, not to slander. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, you who are gloriously good, you who are indeed the judge enthroned in might and majesty, you who are the Lord of hosts, who have innumerable angels ready to do all of your will, you who are storing up wrath, to pour out on a world that has rebelled against you. Father, we come this morning in recognition of that. And we come this morning confessing our sins freely before you, that we might find the forgiveness of our sins. We come before you as needy children, because that is what we are, Lord God. We are needy of your grace and of your mercy. And so, Father, we pray that you would have mercy and show us yet grace. Father, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us for using our tongues for evil means. Forgive us for usurping the authority that you alone have, that that your word alone has. And help us, Lord, to walk in obedience, to fear you as we ought. to understand something of the measure of your perfect love towards us. That we would not fear our judgment. For you have, in Christ, satisfied that judgment. But we would yet walk in holy reverence before you. Father, we pray for those who don't know you, those who slander and hate, those who quarrel, those who are jealous Uh, those who fight and murder, those who take the place of authority of of Your Word, Lord God, have mercy on them. Send Your Spirit into their their lives right now that, that they may see their sins and confess them. Father, help us to be bold to proclaim the truth of the Gospel. That we would be bold to proclaim the bad news. And bolder yet to proclaim the good news that Christ Jesus has come. Oh, Father, help us, we pray. In the name of your only begotten Son and our only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.